Welcome to the Teaching and Lectio podcast for the Abbey, a contemplative vineyard church in Columbus, Ohio. You can find previous teachings and our contemplative reading of the scriptures on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on our website at theabbeycolumbus.church. There, you'll also find important announcements, along with the location and time of our all-church gatherings and community groups throughout the city. The Abbey is committed to being a church that helps people notice and nurture the work of God in their own lives, in the lives of others, and in the world around us. Here's this week's message. Friends, it's good to be here with you uh, this morning. Um, Before I launch in, I just want to highlight... Is everything okay? Is your hair on fire? Oh my God. Um, are you okay? Thanks be to God, right? (laughs) Guys, it's been a morning, let me tell you. (laughs) Um, earlier this morning, um, I went out to start the cargo van with all of our equipment in it and to heat it up because the windows were frosty. And of course, you know, it's a new van to us. It's an old van, but it's a new van to us. And apparently the doors lock automatically. So for like an hour, the car was running with the doors locked while we waited for AAA. So all I have to say is that, oh, man, it's so great to be here with you. <laughs> I'm so glad you're safe. It really smells like burnt flesh up here. <laughs> Just... <laughs> wow, are you okay? Okay, no flesh, just hair. All right, so we're in the room. Really grateful to be here. Second Sunday of Advent. Are we ready? Okay. So one of the people that I wish that I would have had an opportunity to meet before they died was a man named Henry. And Henry uh, was a single man. He was a Catholic priest. He struggled with depression a good deal of his life, his adult life. And we learn about this depression through letters that he wrote and talks that he gave and um, bits and pieces of his life that we pick up through the books that he eventually would write. Henry taught at a, pre- he taught at a few prestigious schools like uh, the University of Notre Dame and Yale Divinity School and Harvard Divinity School. And if you were to look at Henry's life from the outside and from a distance, every indication externally in his life was sort of heading up and to the right. How many of you know like an up and to the right kind of people? Anybody know somebody whose life looks like it's always sort of heading in a great direction? So he was at the top of his field. He was sought after for his wisdom. He was winning awards for his work. And yet internally, he was struggling with a sense of sadness and loneliness. He was struggling to make sense of his own sexuality as a celibate priest. And what he began to realize was that all of his accomplishments and the praise of others and his professional success, none of it seemed to be completely dealing with what was happening on the inside of him. So Henry ended up traveling with some friends to France. He spent nine months living in a community with people. Some of these people had pretty severe learning disabilities. And after spending this time in France, he eventually joined another community of people in Canada where he decided to just move in with a community of people that primarily had learning disabilities. And it was here in Canada where he met a man named Adam. Adam was severely disabled. And Adam 
would become Henry's friend over the next decade. Henry resigned from teaching in the fancy universities in order to give the rest of his life to caring for this community of disabled people. And Adam was his primary person of care. Um, Adam required the care of about 15 people on any given day working in one to two hour shifts because Adam could not be left alone. And Henry, who used to give lectures at Harvard and Yale and Notre Dame, was now primarily oriented to Adam. This place and these people became Henry's new life. Let that sink in a little bit. It's an amazing story, isn't it? This man's name is Henry Nowen. Maybe some of you have heard of him. He's written like a bunch of books. You should just Google it and read a book by Henry Nowen to hear a little bit more about his life. Two years before his death, he gave a talk about his friendship with Adam, and this is what he writes. He says, Adam and I eventually became very connected to one another in a place that I didn't realize existed. In the beginning, I was afraid of him. How do I do this? How do I help this person? And gradually, what I began to realize is that I found myself thinking about Adam throughout my day. I would think the rest of the day about the two and a half hours that I had spent that morning with Adam. And I started to realize that I loved Adam. And that somewhere, Adam had become a teacher, telling me things that I already knew but didn't really fully claim. And as I continued this friendship with Adam, he taught me that being is more important than doing. So the way that Henry would have talked about his life before meeting Adam, he would have told a story about his life of accomplishments and decades of formal education and the awards and the books and the lectures. But when he met Adam, what he began to describe is that he encountered God through his relationship with Adam in this friendship. And he begins to tell a story primarily about love and about the peace that began to settle in his life as he oriented his relationship around love for this new friend, Adam. He begins to tell a story about his own weakness. He begins to tell a story about meaning and about compassion and about finding God in the midst of broken bodies and disabled minds and a community of people that were committed to loving one another. This is Henry's new life after encountering God through Adam. So it's the second Sunday of Advent, and we're in the middle of a long series on the kingdom of God as we've seen it unfolding in the book of Acts. And I've missed the last two Sundays because of COVID. I'm like 85% with you here today. Um, COVID's a real thing, by the way. <laughs> and it really made me sick. And so it's really great to be here with you. What I want to do is to continue in our series on the kingdom. I want to lean into Advent, particularly in this theme of peace this morning. And the primary thing that I want to say about all of that is that when we encounter the kingdom of God, the way that we tell our story changes. When we encounter the kingdom of God, the way that we narrate what our story is about, it begins to shift and change. And ultimately, our story becomes a story that leaves behind whatever that needs to be left behind, and it becomes a story that is rooted in all sorts of things, but one of the things that our story becomes rooted in is peace. And some of the opening pages of the Gospel of Luke, who's the same writer who writes the book of Acts that we're working through, 
The way that Luke tells the story of the announcement of the coming of God into the world, the birth of the Messiah, is through songs sung by angels in a field with shepherds. So if those of you that might be reading through like an Advent reading schedule, you may have come across a passage of Scripture where angels show up to a field where shepherds are, and the song they sing is glory to God, they sing, and peace to all humankind. And the promise of peace is the way that Isaiah, the prophet, talks about the birth of the Messiah. Isaiah writes hundreds of years previous, he says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Isaiah goes on to paint a picture of those who are enslaved as a result of war and those who are oppressed in the midst of bloodshed and that this ongoing pattern of war and violence and oppression, it's going to come to an end when the Prince of Peace comes into the world and brings peace to all humankind, people like you and me. He's speaking of the coming of the kingdom and the coming of the kingdom of God changes the way that people understand the story that they're living in, both in their past, but it also changes how they narrate their future. And listen, friends, all throughout the scriptures, we see people who uh, are encountering uh, a voice or a presence or a thought that seems to be from beyond themselves, and it feels like it's from the divine. And slowly, through these encounters, the God of all creation begins to reveal himself to people from all of these different backgrounds, from shepherds to kings to women who are longing for a child to fathers who refuse to father their own children. All throughout the scriptures, we see people encountering the presence of God and the way they think about their story begins to shift and change. So the series that we've been since the beginning of September is a series on the kingdom of God. And the primary questions that we've been asking is what is the kingdom of God and how does it come? And the third question that I want to sort of layer in for us this morning is what happens to us when we encounter the kingdom of God in the presence of the Prince of Peace? What happens to us and how does it happen? And what does it look like when it, when it does happen? And more importantly, how can it happen to us? How can we get engaged in this transformation of our life? Are you guys with me? Okay. So we're looking at these questions through the book of Acts. And a few weeks ago, we looked at the story of an Ethiopian eunuch who was far from the center of power. He was marginalized because of his ethnicity and the lack of proximity to the inner circle of worship. He was a sexual minority, and therefore he was not clean enough to enter into the temple. And Luke is telling a story of the kingdom of God and the presence of God as it spreads from this little tiny prayer meeting all the way through the city into the suburbs, into the outer regions of the farmland, and all the way to the, to the very ends of the earth. This is the story that we saw in the Ethiopian eunuch who represents the ends of the earth. And so for the first eight chapters of the book of Acts, the power and the presence of God is extending to the marginalized and the poor and the disenfranchised. And then the very next story that Luke tells is a story about somebody who encounters the power and the presence of God, but he is as close to the center of power that you could possibly be. And it's like, 
in some ways, you're like, wait a second, this was really a good story because all of the underdogs were winning. And now we're reading about somebody who's an oppressor and who's at the center of power, and he is also getting in on the kingdom of God. And the text basically says, yeah, it's actually for him too. And while all throughout the scriptures, God seems to have a special place in his heart for the outcast and the lonely and the poor, we now have a front row seat to what it looks like for somebody with power and privilege and wealth to encounter the same God because it's just as much for that person as it is for the poor and the outcast. So Luke starts this next encounter like this. Uh, This is uh, Acts chapter 9. Uh, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay, stop right there, because there's like a whole bunch of stuff that's happening related to what we're talking about here Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. So just a couple pages earlier in your Bible, what would have been happening is there's a story about a man named Stephen who was performing all sorts of signs and wonders. He's praying for people. He's healing people on the streets. He's sharing the good news about the resurrected Jesus. And some of the people from the local sort of religious gathering were who were not followers of Jesus, they began to stir up a lot of trouble. And one of the people that they stirred up trouble for was was a man named Stephen. And they brought Stephen before the high priest, who was the center of religious and political power. This high priest character was part of the strictest sect of Jewish observance. He was in charge of the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. So once a year, there was a day when everybody came into the temple and there was this giant celebration, a sacrifice of sin to God. And the high priest was in charge of that religious service. But what the high priest was also in charge of was basically the finances of the temple. And so he would have had religious responsibilities to the religious people, and he would have had financial responsibilities to the people who were sort of in power. And so the high priest is like the person who has all of the power in the context of this story. And so Stephen was brought before this most powerful figure called the high priest. And when Stephen was brought before the high priest, he tried to explain to him from their own story of the scriptures how everything that was unfolding with the life of Jesus was actually part of their own story. And basically, Stephen's message, he says, you are ignoring the work of God. You're suppressing the work that God's spirit is doing Stephen begins to take a page right out of the book of Jesus, and he criticizes the religious leaders for completely overlooking what God was actually doing. And they, in turn, treated Stephen just like they treated Jesus. They dragged Stephen outside of the city. They took off their outer garment, their coat, not to, so as to not get it dirty. And they threw stones at Stephen until he was dead. Now... The person who was guarding the coats was a man named Saul. He was right there overseeing the stoning of Stephen. It's a really important part of the context. Saul was part of the crowd who murdered Stephen just a chapter earlier. 
And they trusted him with their outer garments. Hey, here, hold my coat so I don't get this dirty. I got to go stone somebody to death. And so Luke is writing that Saul is still breathing threats of murder against the disciples. Saul was part of this religious uh, elite with power. And we read right here in verse 9 that he went to the high priest, the same high priest that killed Stephen. And he said to him, give me some papers so that I can go up to Damascus. And if I find any Christians up there, I can bring them down and we can let them join Stephen's fate. Does this make sense? This is the person who Saul is. He is a murderous, vengeful, religious fundamentalist at the center of power. And he specifically requests to go round up these Jesus followers and bring them back to Jerusalem to be questioned by the high priest. And what's eventually going to happen, which we don't actually have time to unpack today, is that while Saul is on his journey up to Damascus, he has this encounter with the risen Christ. He's blinded for three days. He's cared for by one of the disciples. And then the rest of his life begins to unfold from there. Saul would eventually begin to be called Paul. And if you are somebody that reads the scriptures, you know that Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He would spend the rest of his life telling people about the love of God as encountered through the person of Jesus. Did you guys know that that was the story of this guy named Paul? He used to kill people for following Jesus. And then he has an encounter with the presence of God, and it absolutely changed the trajectory of his story. So that's what happens. I sort of just gave away the whole story but I want to dig a little deeper, and I want to pay attention on one thing, and it's this. How did he think about his life before he had this encounter? You see, the way that Saul narrated and understood his life up to this point of encounter with Jesus was to imagine that he stood in this tradition of people that were keeping their, their religion pure and undefiled by the world. Saul would have been committed to keeping the walls closed off from outsiders and their outside perspective. The story of Saul's people, at least the way that he, he and his buddies would have told it, was that this is a story that needs to be protected, and it's a story about purity. We can't be... Uh, oh, that's an amen from the back of the crowd right there. Thank you for that. That's really kind of you. The story of Saul's people was a story about purity, and he was trying to protect it. And in another letter, Saul's reflecting on how he viewed his life and what kind of story that he imagined himself living in. And he's trying to help people understand his life before he had this encounter uh, on the road. And all of the reasons in the world he had was to put confidence in himself as a religious and a political figure. He had followed all of the right steps to make himself completely pure according to their laws. He was circumcised on the eighth day which was required by Jewish law. That's probably an entirely different sermon. We're not going to go into the intricacies of circumcision this morning on the second Sunday of Advent. 
He was part of the nation of Israel. It was a tribe of Benjamin. He was part of the small band of fundamentalists called the Pharisees. And these Pharisees, they were hyper-conservative religious political movement that was trying to get all of the people to adopt the same passionate, rigorous way of living that was normally reserved for just the priests. So hang with me here, okay? Because what the Pharisees wanted is they wanted everybody like you and me to just act like priests, And so the priests would wash their hands before going into the temple. And the Pharisees set up this structure where they wanted you to wash your hands at your home even before you prayed. That was the kind of sort of religious rigor and fundamentalism that the Pharisees were about. So Paul says that he was zealous for God. And this word zealous wasn't just describing how Paul felt. It was a way of referring specifically to what he was willing to do on behalf of God. The first person in the scriptures to uh, be said to, to have zeal or to be zealous was this guy named Phineas from Numbers chapter 25. And it's a story, again, about somebody who's really passionate for what they think God wants, and they murder people because of it. Saul would, in some sense, have been acting out this previous story from Numbers chapter 25. And uh, his view of his life was as a protector of God's passionate stuff. Saul had done everything right in that story. All of the purity, all of the right things that he had done in this system of religion, all of the things he worked for his whole life gave him access to places of power And his whole life was caught up in this small little story where he had become the protector of God's reputation, willing to kill on behalf of God, to keep their little world closed off from this new thing that the Spirit of God was doing. Am I painting a picture good enough here? You guys get what this guy's about? Okay. It is possible to build your entire life on something that you think is the thing to give your life to, but it not actually be at the center of God's heart. In all of Saul's zeal for God, it led him to violence. But what he missed along the way is that the entire plan of God is to bring peace to earth. It's possible to give your entire life to something that you think is the right thing to do and to completely miss it. Now, I'm going to insert a little thing here because we are heading into an election season. And everybody thinks that the thing that they are zealous for is the thing to fight for. And here's what I want to say to you. We're not a political church in the sense of like, you should vote this way or this way. I, listen, if you make Jesus the center of your life, it could lead you in a variety of directions. But let your devotion be to Jesus, okay? So all around us, what's gonna happen over the next nine, 10 months slash years, it's never gonna go away is that people are going to get all riled up for the thing that they think is worth giving their life to, 
And what, one of the things I'm trying to say to you right now is that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And we can hitch our wagon to Jesus, okay? Okay, a little caveat aside. One that I wouldn't do in an election cycle. Okay, it's possible to give our entire lives to something and miss the entirety of God's heart. It's possible to narrate our whole life and to tell the story about our life and what makes us significant or what we think makes us significant before God and to actually just miss it. So listen, uh, for Saul, it was about creating this well-defined boundary of who is in and who is out, and it drove him to do terrible things in the name of God. But what Saul wasn't counting on, and he, what, what he wasn't prepared for was an encounter with the power and the presence of God on the road to Damascus, and the fact that God came to earth to bring peace. This moment, this one moment, made everything that Paul Saul was living for completely worthless, and he had to start over. And a story like this, I think, uh, needs to kind of allow us to, to think a little bit about our own lives. And the question that I, I want us to consider a little bit this morning is this, is what is actually at the center of our life really the thing that is meant to be at the center? Like, is the story that is driving our lives, the narrative that we live by, is it the true narrative? And listen, each of us struggles with different kinds of narratives that get into the center place of our life. I doubt that there are many of you here today that are like religious fundamentalist zealots who are ready to kill for something. I doubt that there's anyone here. But the question is, what is the key narrative that is driving your activity of your life. Like it might be something really simple, like the need to be liked or the need to be right or the need to secure six months of savings or to contribute more money to your 401k and so you're working your way up in order to be able to do that. It might be the need to have things like in your life completely in order. Like everything has to be just right. Or for your kids to be a certain way or to act a certain way or to know everything that you could possibly know about the thing that you're interested in. What is it at the center that's actually driving the behavior of your life? We tend to have an operating narrative to our life that is pushing us forward and calling the shots and telling a story about our life even in ways that we actually may not be aware of. So, like, what is that for you? What's at the center? Um, one of Thomas Merton's most quotable quotes, Merton was a monk in the 1960s um, living in Kentucky at the Abbey of Gethsemane. If you're around with us for a while, you'll probably hear Thomas Merton's name spoken uh, quite a bit. One of his most famous quotes is, goes like this. He says that people may spend their whole lives climbing a ladder only to find, once they reach the top, that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. And this is really what Saul discovered when he encountered the kingdom of God in the presence of God, in the person of Christ who was born a baby when he came into the world. He came into the world to have this kind of encounter with people like you and people like me. This kind of directional changing encounter. 
He came to encounter you and to me and to change our stories and to change the way that we actually narrate our life from violence to peace, from anxiety to peace, from conflict with one another to peace. Every story and every life and every ladder leaned against the wrong building gets transformed into a story about hope and peace and joy and love. This is what we celebrate at Advent. It's supposed to change us. Mary, the mother of Jesus, after she found out that she was pregnant, Luke writes that she went to visit uh, the hill country to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who was also pregnant. She was pregnant with John the Baptist. And as they met together, the Spirit of God, the presence of God joined them there, and an old woman who never should have gotten pregnant except through the mercy of God, and a young girl who never should have gotten pregnant except for the mercy of God, they come together and they see the grace and the mercy bound up in the fact that they're both carrying babies for the future of the world. The presence of God joins them in this moment, and Mary begins to sing a song, and this is the song that she sings. The mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent the rich away empty-handed. Everybody's life gets turned upside down when the Prince of Peace comes. Everybody's life has the opportunity to be reoriented. And the question for us here 2,000 years later celebrating the fact that God did come to the world while we long for the fact that he has promised to come again is to ask ourselves the question, how is my life and narrative being reoriented based upon my encounter with the God who came in the form of a baby? How is it happening? And is it actually happening? Or is there some other deeper narrative that is pushing me forward to act in ways that I need to relinquish? And it might come at the cost of being blind for a season, like, like Saul. It might come where you get confused and you're like, I have no idea what's happening. But then the mercy and the grace of God will come to you and begin to reveal to you what the future of your life is meant to be. And it doesn't necessarily mean that your vocation changes. You don't necessarily have to quit your job and become a Mother Teresa in your particular context. But how is your life changed by encounter with the presence of God? And if it's not changed, I would invite you to just consider asking the question, God, how do you want to shift the narrative of my life? I want to flash forward a bit to Saul's life. He's writing years after this encounter on his way up to Damascus. So like 20 years later, he's writing some letters to people. 25 years later. And he's recounting a little bit about his life and about this transition. And he's writing about all of the things that we've been talking about. He's reflecting on all of the ways that he's poured his life into what he thought would bring meaning and significance and fulfillment. And he simply writes this. He says... Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them all as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Another translation puts it like this. Yes, all the things that I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant dog dung. How about that for a translation? I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could be embraced by Christ and be embraced by him. Friends, when the kingdom of God comes into your life, when you encounter the presence of God and the power of God's love for you, when we set all of the things that we worry about next to the privilege of a firsthand experience of embracing God and being embraced by God, everything else will feel like leaning your ladder up against the wrong wall. An encounter with the kingdom of God changes the way that we tell the story of our past and it rearranges what we count as significant for our future. And so Saul begins to travel to Damascus with his entire story about who he is and what he's about and what he's for and what he's against and all of this is sort of trailing behind him. And the text says that Saul is riding on his horse up to Damascus and suddenly a light flashes from heaven around him and he falls to the ground and he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in the moment of encounter with the same person who showed up as a baby in a manger, now speaking to him on the side of the road with a bright light in his eyes, Saul's entire life crumbled and a whole new life opened up before him. So he spends these three days blind in Damascus. He's neither eating or drinking. And God sends uh, another disciple, uh, Ananias, to him to pray for him and to, to lay hands on him so that he would receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And when all of this happens, after this entire scene unfolds, Saul begins to move towards people that he used to want to kill. He spends the rest of his life embodying the song that Mary sang. His whole life was caught up in being at the top, and now he positions the rest of his life in humble service to people that he used to want to kill. Do you guys see the transformation there? He begins to learn that the same presence of God that met him on the road is also among the poor and among those that he had spent his life excluding. And he begins to identify his own life with the life of Jesus. He takes on this idea that in, in the same way that the death of Jesus created life for other people, he came to know that in some mysterious way, that as little bits of that old story of his continued to die off, it opened up his life as a way of becoming life for other people. He writes in one of his other letters, he says, for me to live means Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives inside of me. And the life that I now live in my body is really Christ living through me. Total transformation, total reorientation to becoming Christ in the world. So I want to just close with an invitation 
uh, for you to consider, for us to consider together. And it's really simple. And it's an invitation that I want to send to you today, but it's one that I hope will sort of sit with you in this Advent season. And here, here it is. What are the parts of the way that you have narrated your story are ones that God would ask you to continue to lay aside? That's a pretty simple question. Is there anything that you're grabbing a hold of that, that you think is the thing that you have to get, that you have to attain? And I don't know what that is for you. It could be like success or wealth or whatever it is. What is the invitation that God would ask you to just open up your hands and say, would you allow me to totally transition the narrative of your life to center around the Prince of Peace coming into the world? This makes sense? Okay. So we're going we're gonna to worship together, sort of holding that question. But I don't want it to just be a question about what do we need to do next. I think as we worship, one of the things that I want to encourage you to do as well is to reflect, God, what are some of the ways that you've already radically changed my story? Could you just, as we worship, could you worship God with the transition and the transformation that has already come to you? Um, so why don't you stand? Um, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and to be with us as we worship. We thank you, Lord, for preparing our hearts, God, with uh, your word. We pray, God, that you would come even now as the Prince of Peace into whatever is being stirred up. In Christ's name.